Welcome to Laughing Your Mask Off, the podcast where we talk to comedians about navigating the world of comedy since the pandemic. I'm Katherine Cowan. And I'm Carly Palestina. And today we are talking to the very smart, very funny Jocelyn Chia. Hey, welcome Jocelyn. Hello. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Right. All right, so we just want to start with um, just hearing a little bit about your background. How did you get started in comedy? What, yeah, how, how did you end up here? Uh, I was a lawyer and then I became a consultant. So that was like the corporate background that I had. And while working as a consultant up in Boston, I decided, you know what, that's just so much more to me than being a PowerPoint Excel spreadsheet monkey. I'm going to do stand-up comedy. So I went for a class and at first they wouldn't let me in because I, I wanted to sign up the day the class started. So I called them. I was like, hey, is it too late to sign up? The registrar actually said, yeah, it's too late. The class is starting today. And I was like, so what is it starting today? What's the big freaking deal? And I was like, should I go anyway and just ask the teacher directly? And I actually tossed the coin as to whether or not to go. And the coin was like, yeah, go. So I showed up in class and I talked to the teacher. I was like, hey. Can I still sign up? She's like, yeah, of course. And so ta-da, I, I signed up for that comedy class. And then actually many years later, when I got asked to teach stand-up comedy, I called up that same teacher like, hey, you know, I loved your comedy class. Do you have any pointers on how to run a good class? Awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. Wait, so it all really, you're, it, it had been like tales or whatever it was. You yeah. wouldn't have gone. I think so. I think I wouldn't be a comedian today if it was tales. <laughs> That's incredible. Where did you take the class? Where was the first class um, that you took, if you don't mind my asking? The, uh, the one in Boston is called Improv Boston. It's actually an improv studio and they taught stand-up at there, at there as well. Awesome. And then you like took the class and were like, this is what I want to do. I want to continue with this. Like with No, there's or- more to that afterwards. So I, during the class, this journalist for the Boston Globe invited me out for a date. And the date was to see Aziz Ansari. And at the time, I didn't even know who Aziz Ansari was. I hadn't even seen good comedy really in my life. Uh, So I went to watch Aziz on this date. And halfway through was when I was like, this is it. This is what I want to (laughs) do. So it's because of Aziz. And then (laughs) now my parents hate Aziz Ansari. So you fell in love with one thing on that date um yeah yeah exactly that was like my first and last date with him but I continued <laughs> something else but married to comedy uh, <laughs> wow that's great so you were you took a class you started teaching the class when did you make the move from Boston to New York not that long about maybe a few months after starting to do stand-up comedies like coincidentally you know the the job that was offered Cause like Boston was the headquarters. The job was for another country. Then the position in the other country went away. There was like some downturn in the economy at the time or, or just this company, I can't remember. So that position got eliminated. So like kind of coincidentally after I started stand-up comedy was when I now didn't have a job waiting for me in, in Asia. So that's when I moved back to New York where I had been a lawyer before. And then once I hit the New York scene, that just took things to the next level because and I'm actually glad I started in Boston because we have a very supportive scene there. And I came to New York and I went to this open mic called the Laughing Buddha Open Mic. And 
I was like, wow, this New York mic is so tough. And the comic was like, this is the best mic we have in New York. <laughs> this is the most supportive <laughs> mic we have in New York. I was like, really? And so tough. Because in Boston, an open mic, you get comics laughing. It's like almost like a real show. But in the New York mic, it was like, I, you guys know, right? Just comics stick in their heads or looking through their notes um, or just not really being very supportive. So I'm glad I started in Boston because it was supportive. I got to know that I was funny. Because um, if I, I think if I started in the New York open mic scene, I have been eaten live. I might have just given up after that first mic. That's wild. So one thing I always kind of wonder um, when I talk to comedians who are like a little bit further along in their career is, do you remember like how you made the leap from like originally doing like open mics arriving on the scene into being like a bigger time comedian? Like, was that through sort of like shows with friends or like booker audition shows or like, how did you become more of like a professional comedian from, you know, starting out in New York? Yeah. So I think the next stage out from an open mic, of course, the bar shows that your fellow comedians will produce, you can produce yours too, and then trade spots. That's a very big way that you'll get stage time. But it's definitely not enough because bar shows are going to be a one-off thing. You know, there's so, only so many shows your bar show producer friend is going to put you on. Maybe like once a year or twice a year, they put you on their bar show because there's so many other comedians. But once you're in a club, that's a whole different ball game because that's very consistent stage time pre-COVID days a club can have two to four shows per night so they need a lot of comedians so that's when you can really get a lot better once you're passed at a club so the first club I got passed at was Broadway Comedy Club where I now teach so that was a, a cute coincidence and that's that's really I think that when you really hit professional level because you're one getting consistent stage time right multiple times a week and you're doing it with pros who have been on television. They have their own specials on HBO, Netflix. Um, and when you see, at least when I saw how much worse I, wore, I was compared to them, I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> game. Uh, so I think that's really what takes you to the next level. Like being the funniest open micer is one thing, but then having to follow Ronnie Chiang, uh, Christian Finnegan, uh, Carmen Lynch, then that's like when you really take your act to the next level. So you can hold your head against them and not feel like I suck yeah absolutely no that makes a lot of sense just for our listeners who may not know can you kind of describe um what you mean by being passed as passed at a club like what that entails yeah yeah passed means you are now a regular at the club so you'll send your availability every week or every month depending on how the club does it and then the booker will say okay you can do this show this show this show this show this show and then how do you get to um, like that stage where you do get passed at a club? Like, I don't know. I feel like we haven't talked about that a lot on our show at all. So oh, you haven't? Okay. To <laughs> yeah. So it, um, a lot of clubs offer auditions. So how I got into Broadway was this audition show they have called the industry room. It is a bringer. Uh, no surprise because who's going to watch a bunch of amateur comedians if it's not your friends. <laughs> so you bring maybe five people, you get five minutes of stage time and if the booker likes you, he'll give you a residency, meaning that's, and that's how I, I when I get, give the story about how I had to follow really professional comedians, it's at the industry room, because I had a two-month residency that I won after doing this bringer, and 
that's when they gave me a spot every single week on a professional show where I now had to follow Corey Kahane and um, Joe DeVito. Right? These are all like comics with multiple TV credits and see how bad I was compared to them. Uh, <laughs> but you also develop relationships, etc. So that's how I got past at Broadway by doing their industry room audition. Uh, and they don't just, it's not just like one person takes it all, you know, he will give a guest spot to a few comics that he thinks has potential. So you do get a professional spot uh, on, on one of the pro shows if, if he thinks he did well enough in the industry room that you can be groomed. So that was Broadway. Greenwich Village is also another um, audition show like that. New York Comedy Clubs. So I think a lot of these clubs just have these audition shows that you bring people, you get seen by the booker. Good enough. They put you into the system. The way New York does it is that if you do well enough, they qualify you for late night. So after the regular show, some of the late night comics will come on and do a quick five to kind of hone their craft. Uh, once you are doing well enough in late night, then you get promoted to the check spot. The check spot is a terrible spot where they'll cut the, the audience is paying their checks and then you're the one trying to tell jokes, making them laugh. But <laughs> it's a very good strengthening spot to be in because you really get strong. You really learn to like get their attention. Um, it is a, it's a muscle that, that can be built. Um, and the best advice for anyone who has to do a check spot that I was given, that I'm just going to share is treat it like a regular spot. Like don't be intimidated. Don't be like, oh, it's a check spot. Fuck it. You know, just treat it like a regular spot. And once I started doing that was when I got bumped up from check spot to then guest spot. You're starting to hear how like the ladder is very, very long. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe there are many freaking levels to get, get through in, in comedy. After check spot, then you get bumped to guest spot. And guest spot is a sweet spot. You know, it's not an open mic where you have to listen to 20 comics before you can do your five. And then when you do your five, there's a bunch of people not paying attention. No, a guest spot, you're there. It's in the middle of the show. You have an attentive audience paying attention to you. They give you a spot time. 10, 25 p.m. is your spot time. You show up, go up, and then you can leave. Like, it's great. Like, that's probably the, the level where I got best, fastest. Because I didn't have to wait around for four hours to work out five minutes. I got to work it out with a real audience. So guess what? It's a pretty sweet spot. And then, of course, like the creme de la creme is the paid spots where now you're getting paid to do 15 minutes. Um, it is, yes, obviously everyone wants to get the paid spot. But I would say the guest spot is like a sweet luxury because it's just 10 minutes. You go in, kill for a little bit, work out something new kill the rest of the time, you're done. When you're like a paid spot comics, 15 to 20 minutes, it's longer, there's pressure on you to do, to do, to do well because you're like the paid spot or you're the headliner even. Uh, so I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be like, so like, I got to get to paid spots ASAP. I think the guest spot is a pretty sweet spot to be in to keep honing your craft. Awesome. Yeah, so this is like, sounds like you had some really great uh, experiences, like, I don't know, moving through the comedy world. Um, but one of the things that Carly and I both noticed um, that really stood out to us about your journey in comedy is that you have a bunch of festival credits um, as well. Could you talk a little bit about like why comics do festivals and your experience with comedy festivals and um, just your opinion on that? Mm. There are some festivals that I don't really know why comics do. <laughs> um, <laughs> meaning if there's no industry watching you, there's no grand prize, you're just like paying to join a festival just to perform. I guess if you want the stage time, sure, right? And if it's not too inconvenient, but if you have to like fly at your own expense to do a festival, 
just to get seen by an audience of no industry, then okay, if you have the money and the time and, and you want to have that fun experience and network mm-hmm. other comics, sure. But I would only recommend festivals where you can get something out of it, right? So for example, the Big Sky Comedy Festival is known for having a lot of good industry. Just for Laugh, obviously, it's a huge industry festival, very prestigious. Um, or if there's like some good prize money uh, that you want to win, then, then that's when I would do a, a festival. Or um, one of the festivals was um, the She Devil Comedy Festival. You get prize money and a feature spot at a bunch of clubs. So I would do a festival if there's something to be gotten out of it. God, Unless you just have fun, then you go, go for it and have fun. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think that weighing the the advantages and disadvantages of going versus not going is a big thing. And I also think we've seen a lot of that change during the pandemic because you have these comedy festivals that have moved online. So like, how have you been doing during the pandemic with comedy? What's been different that you're doing? Um, Really, how have you been continuing comedy during this time? So I did join a festival online but that one was easy because I didn't have to fly anywhere. Uh, there was a prize money of, I think, 1500 or something like that. I was like, okay, that's worth my time. <laughs> uh, so I did do that, uh, speaking of festivals. And then other than that, I've been doing Zoom shows and Zoom open mics, which was interesting to go from, you know, I climbed the ladder from open mic to Cape Pro on the weekend. Now I'm having to like go right back to the open mic level again. <laughs> that was kind of interesting um but the frustrating thing is that whole year of doing zoom shows and zoom open mics now that i'm back on the live show circuit i'm like i got one fucking good bit out of that whole thing i shouldn't have (laughs) even bothered should just netflix and chill for a year (laughs) i I mean okay i'm glad i have that one good bit sure but like what a waste of a year of of zoom shows and zoom open mics it's like whatever worked on Zoom doesn't seem to work that well in person. It's so weird. Yeah. No, it's definitely weird. Were you doing a lot of Zoom shows too in addition to festivals? Or were you just like Zoom open mics and then one festivals came up? Well, I did one festival, uh, one open, one online festival, and then Zoom shows and Zoom open mics. Yeah, I'm personally very anti-Zoom show. I know Carly likes Zoom show. We kind of have like a little bit of beef on the show about this because (laughs) Carly likes Zoom and I don't. But sorry, Zoom, that we are currently on. Um, No offense. We're recording this on. Um, I I saw them to be very good. A lot of times the audiences were very fun and they laughed. And so I was actually getting a false read on my material. Do you think that Zoom comedy is here to stay? Like, I know you said that you're also like very happy to be back in person. Um, Do you think think that there are a lot of comics who also want to stay on Zoom or kind of what's your read on that? You know, it was a good way to get corporate gigs. Um, That might stay because I think a lot of companies realize, oh, look at that. We can have a virtual show for our employees scattered all around the world or all around the country, have a comedian come on. Uh, so I think actually that might stay. I think Zoom shows might actually stay because we're still used to watching comedy on YouTube anyway and Netflix. So we're used to consuming comedy from the screen. So I think from an audience point of view, they probably wouldn't mind a Zoom show, especially when it's a corporation with employees all over. Uh, so my guess is yes, they will stay, especially for the, the corporate shows. 
the open mics they might continue as well just because it's so convenient for comics to just like do it on zoom yeah for sure what do you think about like outdoor shows have you done anything with yeah them? i think they're great they're fine i mean i know there was a time where we we're like outdoor shows fuck that <laughs> shit uh but no in, in covid it was way better than nothing um you can still get a good read on your material you can get a great crowd going yes there are inconveniences like the freaking train going by or a truck or a lorry um so definitely some downside and when I went from outdoor shows to like an indoor show where it felt like an old school New York style crowd you know it was like 80 some people and great crowd it's like oh my god it's like the pinnacle something I had taken for granted back then now I'm like oh my god this is the most amazing feeling in the world so I think outdoor shows make you more appreciative of indoor shows yeah but they're not bad I mean that zoom outdoor show indoor show you know like zoom is the worst no I think zoom is the worst but I think it has it's like fun quirky benefits I don't hate it I just I don't hate it either yeah yeah, I just um, found it useless for my purposes because it gave me a false read. No, totally. Um, what is even going through all like the whole doing it in, under a train or in all these various locations during the pandemic or otherwise, what do you think is the either best or just weirdest location you've ever done comedy? In a laundromat. <laughs> What? <laughs> I did a comedy show in the laundromat. You had the freaking like dryers going and you're competing against the dryer and the washing machine. <laughs> How did that come up? In San Francisco, they have this show at a, at a laundromat. <laughs> they have an open mic that's very popular. I think it maybe was an open mic. They have a very popular open mic in San Francisco at a laundromat. And it's just, they don't have a stage or anything. You're just like in the laundromat. You're just in the laundromat. That's <laughs> like people are doing their laundry and you're like, we're going to do a show over here. Yeah, exactly. It was so crazy. Wild. Was that I know, a- wild. The pandemic was that from the pandemic? No, this is pre-pandemic. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super wild. Um, so then how, like we've all gone through this kind of like weird adjustment in comedy. Um, has it affected your comedy at all? And do you think it's going to affect like, your comedy, your, your take on comedy or anything like that going forward? No, I feel like right now it's, I canceled, so I keep track of the number of years I've been doing comedy. I canceled 2020. I was like, I developed one new joke. Fuck you, yeah, I'm canceling this fucking year. Yeah. So I feel like I'm just like continuing where I left off at the start of 2020. So I think I'm just like going right back to, all right, now let's develop the next 20 minutes of my, of my time, et cetera doing the grind of the live shows. I remember when I first came back to the New York scene a couple, couple of weeks ago, I was like, oh, this feels so great. It was back in the game. And I was like, hmm, I wonder how long it'll take for me to go from I'm back in the game to, oh, I'm back in the grind. <laughs> Two weeks. <laughs> and I feel like I'm back in the grind. Do you have anything exciting coming up, like show-wise or anywhere you, you're like, this is a show I'm looking forward to? Mm, I would say possible depending if I get in um just for less is coming up this summer so we'll see after that Europe I'll be touring Europe for a little bit as well uh and then a bunch of my west coast gigs from 2020 got postponed to not 2021 but 2022 unbelievably enough wow oh that's gonna happen next early next year 
That's so awesome. And then probably Asia as well. I got um asked to sign with this manager who, do you know Live Nation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was in charge of Live Nation Asia. And, and now he wants to take on uh, five co- comedians to turn into the next touring superstars. And for some reason, he picked me as one of them. So I'm signing <laughs> with an Asian tour uh, not to worry, but an Asian manager to to take me to that next level. So probably some Asia, Australia gigs coming up in the future, in the near future. That's so awesome. And so then how, we haven't talked to anyone on our podcast yet who um, is like a real touring comic. How did you, how do you end up like booking tours? Like you had, you mentioned um, going to Europe. Like, is that something you schedule your, on your own or do you have like a booking agent or how does that work? Yeah, Europe, I did schedule on my own. Uh, it started because I was just going to be in Europe anyway. My my nephew lives out there, so I would book Berlin shows. Um, and then I would go to London and, and book a bunch of shows there too. And then once I started getting some European shows, then they'd be like, oh, do you want to do Switzerland? If you want to do Belgium? So I just kind of just started from there. Uh, Asia, I... I have a presence out there because I was born and, and grew up in Singapore. So I do go back to Singapore once a year. And once I started going back to Singapore and look, I'll, like, I'll tell you a story. There's a, a Laughing Buddha open. Those who don't know, Laughing Buddha is a, a open mic company in, in New York. So he was like a Laughing Buddha open micer. And then he went over to Hong Kong and with like his Laughing Buddha open mic set. Now he's like killing, you know, audiences of 100, 200 people with his like Buddha set. It's because a New York comic is considered so good outside of New York. <laughs> you know, like you may be an open micro in New York, but you're like, once you go to another country where the, the standard isn't as high or the, the comedy scene isn't as developed, you're, you start to become like, go from open micro to like pro comic, like overnight. <laughs> so uh, when I went to Singapore for the very first time, I think I was still an open mic in New York, but they were like, oh, wow, a good female comedian in, in, in the scene. So I started getting booked out on, on shows in Singapore, graduated to headliner. And then once I was at headliner status in Singapore, then word got around with the other bookers in Asia. So then I started headlining Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam. Uh, so I think it's now word of mouth. Like once like one booker has a good experience with you as a headliner, then the word was spread, especially as a female headliner. I mean, there's so few um, Asian female headliners. I mean, like not visiting from America, Australia, but like homegrown Asian female headliners, so few. So like when they get one good one, they're like, everybody has to know about her. (laughs) (laughs) So cool. So when you find yourself like going, you're going abroad for all these shows, do you find yourself editing your sets for specific national audiences like obviously you're not going to be like new york's crazy right but like (laughs) do you feel do you have to make edits to make jokes hit in different countries yeah absolutely so at first i was like i think i'm gonna only do comedy in new york because when i first did even outside of new york even in new jersey suddenly jokes that would kill in new york city would bomb in new jersey i was like what the f is going on so you i really had to learn over the years that you know, jokes don't necessarily translate or you might have to do something to tweak them. Uh, so I definitely have jokes that will only do in Asia, um, only do in, in, in New York or America. So yeah, definitely there's a lot of editing. You kind of trial and error. Um, I, I, when I was in Asia, comics would say they have a local set and then an international set. So I, I think some comics just have their, their local thing and then an international set that's more generic. So that's pretty tough because there's a lot of material to write. 
Yeah. And then do you, um, when you say that you like edit it for wherever you are, do you have to do like open mics on that scene or how do you figure out like how to adjust your set depending on like the culture of where you are? Yeah, I definitely try to do open mics at the scene. I remember that was a very funny episode once when I, so I got uh, asked to do Comedy Central in Asia. And so a bunch of the, the and they got comics from all around the world. It wasn't just Asian. It was Asian identifying comics, but you know, lived in America, Europe, etc. So they flew us out to Asia. And I remember there was this one headliner at the club. So all of us Comedy Central comics were like calling up this local club. Can we run our Comedy Central set at your club? So they were like, yeah, of course, come over. And so this poor headliner had to follow like 10 Comedy Central comedians <laughs> running their TV set before he went out. He was like, what the fuck is going on? Why are all the openers killing it so hard? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, definitely. I definitely try to run my set like a low, low stakes situation before having a headline in another country. Sometimes you don't have that luxury. Then you just like wing it and hope for the best. It's so hard to read a <laughs> room of one location to do it internationally and be like this will hit here is so beyond <laughs> impressive so like oh it's very difficult I, I mean I hated it for a long time I was like, oh, why can't every city just be New York City but then, <laughs> kind of on that note you've been doing competitions and festivals all over the world what is advice that either somebody has given you or you would give to up-and-coming comedians um I guess the best advice was what I got when I first started. The only two things a comic needs to do to get better, write and perform. <laughs> you know, it's not really that hard. <laughs> but the hard part is being consistent about it. Even I'm a terrible slacker when it comes to writing. So, but it's definitely just a necessary thing, write and perform. I recommend writing with other comedians just to get more comedic minds on your material. You know, sometimes you can be very limited in your viewpoint and someone else, um, opens up a different angle or just riffing with someone I, I think a lot of funny stuff comes out so I highly recommend that because it's more fun like I mean, even talking to one of the the best writers I know in the business he's like yeah sitting down to write by myself is like splitting my own wrist I was like <laughs> for you too like he's the best writer I know of in all of Asia and even for him it's like splitting his wrist I was like oh well no wonder I feel like hanging myself when I write by myself so I recommend writing other people if you find writing a chore like I do yeah just constantly be writing as much as you can mm -hmm. and make it fun by writing to other people yeah and I yeah. know you've mentioned you teach a um all one of the classes you teach you teach a co-ed class and an all-female uh, stand-up comedy class at Broadway Comedy Club. Do you find the energy of the two rooms different writing with or working with uh, other female comedians versus working with kind of everyone? Really, what are your thoughts? Mm. Yeah, and in all women class, it's kind of like a big slumber party <laughs> when, <laughs> you know, if they feel like shitting on men, they feel free to shit on men. If they feel like talking about their pussies, they talk about their pussies. Like, <laughs> I, I noticed that it's, people will edit themselves when they, there is the opposite sex in the room. Men do that. You know, they, they clean up their language if they're women in the room or they don't sound so misogynistic. Um, women maybe don't, don't, aren't, aren't as free to talk about their, their uh, like, like the vagina, right? Like they may, they may, <laughs> may be a little shy. They want to seem a little, little more ladylike. So in the all women class, it was really like, slumber party free for all you know girl talk 
session where where a lot of um material would come out that may not have otherwise come up, I think, if, if they were censoring themselves for, for the sake of the other sex. But I think the most the most striking thing is how freaking supportive women are of other women. I mean it's also the the energy that I create. You know, I'm like it's one of collaboration and cooperation. This is not a competition. We're all here to help one another get better and better. Uh, so I don't know whether it's like a women or, or just like I, I made it such that it was a very collaborative atmosphere, but it was a very supportive, um, mutually nurturing type of environment. Uh, it, it's the same in the female open mics too. You know, I noticed that female open mics are just so much more supportive than when there are dudes in the open mic. Yeah. Do you have a reason why you think that is? Or Well, women are brought up to be nicer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We just were brought up to be nicer and more supportive of other people, less self-centered, maybe. You're like, right, oh, right. You. We're going to support you too. Yeah, maybe we were just nicer than men. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then we've talked a lot about like how much success you've had in comedy and like, I don't know, a lot of the like good sides of it. Is there anything you like particularly struggle with in comedy? And like, if so, what is it and how do you overcome it? Oh my God. I mean, definitely the writing coming up good new material. I mean, the two weeks I came back on the, on the live scene in New York, I was like, Oh, this is so great. And you're doing a live show again. Um, but then it went from like game to grind when I'm like every single fucking new joke I work is bombing. And it's so <laughs> frustrating, especially when they work like one time, the first time you do it, you're like, Oh my God. It's, it's, there's something about a new joke that likes to work the first time. So you're like, oh shit, I just wrote this great new joke. And then like it stops working after that first time or maybe second time that you try it. And that's why I want to kill comedy. You know, I'm like, I fucking wrote a joke. <laughs> you work once, maybe even two or three times and then you stop. What is your fucking problem? So that's the <laughs> hardest part. Like it, it drives me crazy when it's, uh, when it leads me on, when a joke leads me on. Yeah. What a fuck boy. This joke is a fuck boy. <laughs> Do you have any like strategies for when you don't want to write um, and when you're kind of having trouble with it um, or getting frustrated with it of like how you then like move forward? Yeah, I usually run it by another comedian. Like, hey, you know, I'm having trouble with this joke. Do you have any angles? Uh, it can be helpful. It's not, it's not foolproof, but at least like to give you some, you know, sometimes you're just spinning your wheels in your own head that you just need another perspective. It can help. Yeah. Not always, yeah. but it can. So I have a question for you that a bunch of my friends um, who are also kind of newer comics have been um, wondering and we're all trying to trying to figure out is that what do you see as like the lifespan of your jokes? Like at what point do you kind of say like, okay, I've done this one enough. I'm going to stop doing it or do you not? Do you keep using them? Like, yeah, like as you build up a library, do you then take some out of commission or how does that work for you? Yeah, I mean, basically, when you're at uh, a certain level, once it hits your special, then you can't do it anymore. But until you get to that level, <laughs> you can keep doing them. I mean, I know of comics that do it the same bits 20 years later because they're still evergreen, right? So until you put on a special, um, maybe late night, but more, more so it's like when you're at that level where you're doing a special, people see your special, and then they come out to see you live, they're not going to be wanting to do that same joke again. So... I would say that's really the level where you have to retire jokes. Um, at the normal pro level, a lot of pros have been doing stuff for many, many, many years. Like if it's a good joke and an evergreen, 
they still keep it in their back pocket, whip it out when they want to or when they need to. So I would say you expire them if a joke isn't relevant anymore. You know, if it's not an evergreen joke, if it's political, pop culture, current event, then you know, this is just a short lifespan. Like once it's like no longer fresh on people's minds, you have to expire it. Um, but I would say I will only take a joke out if it's just not that good. You know, like as your material gets better and better, whatever used to be my tight five is now my bottom five. And that's when it does, unless I have to do an hour and I have to bring out every fucking joke I've ever written in my life, <laughs> then it's out of the set because it's just not good enough. Um, but then there are some jokes that I wrote like years ago that are still would be in like the top 20% of jokes. So they would still be in that set because they're just that good. So I would say go by how good your jokes are. And if it's that good, no matter how old it is, if it's still in your best 20% of jokes, then this is, this is your tight five to 20 or however many, many, many minutes you have in your best jokes. So you're saying that you kind of have you all the jokes you've ever written, nothing's out because it's been too long. It's just like, okay, does, is this going to stand the test of time? Is it still funny? Keep all right. Is it going to test of time? Is it still funny? Is it as funny as the newer stuff that I'm writing? If it's as funny as the new great jokes that I write, it stays. Sometimes it's even funnier. Like my challenge is... Um, I have like some really great jokes that now I have trouble <laughs> matching. So like everything, <laughs> is, like, like when I say like all the new material I've written doesn't work, it's not that it doesn't get a laugh. It's not an A laugh. You know, it's not the same level as like the tight, say, I don't know, like my, my best 15 jokes, for example. Like it's not the same level as my best 15 jokes. I'm like, this fucking sucks. And so it <laughs> cannot go into the set because it's just not as good. Got it. So lastly, we're running out of time, but before we close up, we just want to ask, is there anything that you would like to promote? Any social media, any shows coming up, really anything? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram, always trying to build my followers. Um, I just beat my ex into the follower. <laughs> so let's keep that trajectory going. <laughs> 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 so it's Jocelyn Comedy, J-O-C-E-L-Y-N Comedy at, on Instagram. Great. And do you have any like shows coming up for the, like launching on Monday, but then afterwards, do you have any shows coming up that you'd like people to come out and see? Let me see if I have any big shows coming up. Uh, I know I have Gotham coming up on, yeah, so this episode is on Monday the 10th. I have two shows at Gotham Comedy Club. May 20th, um, I think it's going to be 7 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. So whatever the two shows are on May 20th at Gotham Comedy Club, I'm on both of them. Awesome. All right, cool. So to our viewers, or listeners, I guess, go see go see Jocelyn's show. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks yep. so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Laughing Your Mask Off. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a good review. To keep up with our hosts, Follow Catherine at Catherine.Reagan, spelled R-E-A-G-A-N, and Carly at Carly Palestina on Instagram. See you next week. <laughs>